Before the episode, I want to share a quick word from this episode's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly Risk Strategies. Our first sponsor, Live Oak Bank, is a seasoned SMB lender providing SBA and conventional financing for search funds, independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire lower middle market companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Lisa Forrest or Heather Anderson directly to start a conversation or go to liveoakbank.com think. Our second, Hood & Strong, is a CPA firm with a long history of working with search funds and private equity firms on diligence, assurance, tax services, and more. Hood & Strong is highly skilled in working with search funds, providing quality of earnings and due diligence services during the search, along with assurance and tax services post-acquisition. They offer a unique way to approach acquisition diligence and manage costs effectively. To learn more about how Hood & Strong can help your search, acquisition, and beyond, please email one of their partners, Jerry Joe at jzhou at hoodstrong.com. And our third sponsor, Oberly Risk Strategies, is the leading specialty insurance brokerage catering to search funds and the broader ETA community, providing complimentary due diligence assessments of the target company's commercial insurance and employee benefits programs. Over the past decade, August Felker and his team have engaged with hundreds of searchers to provide due diligence and ultimately place the most competitive insurance program at closing. Given August's experience as a searcher himself, he and his team understand all that goes into buying a business and pride themselves on making the insurance portion of closing seamless and hassle-free. If you are under LOI, please reach out to August to learn more about how Oberly can help with insurance due diligence at oberly-risk.com or reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com. And now for the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a quarterly print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small company today and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at theoperatorshandbook.com. My guest on this episode is Jordan Evans. Jordan grew up in an entrepreneurial family in California. His parents started a language translation and interpreting business when he was two years old and it grew over the course of his childhood. It grew enough that he actually acquired it from his parents in 2019 and has since been growing the business organically and through strategic bolt-on acquisitions of other language companies. I love episodes with family businesses. I've become more interested recently in roll-ups, so this was a really fun episode for me. Over the course of the episode, we talk about how his parents started and grew the company, childhood with entrepreneurial parents, best practices in running a fully remote team, and developing a growth through acquisition playbook. Enjoy. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Jordan. It's good to talk to you. 
I've been excited to have this episode since we had our chat about Santa Barbara and running a family business and all this other stuff. I'd love to hear a little bit about the business your parents started in life growing up with a family business and then how you eventually decided to to buy the business and run it. Yeah, it's an honor to be here. I'm a huge fan, avid listener. So hopefully we can uh, discuss something of, of interest and fun for uh, the rest of your listeners. My, my story is a little unique in that I accidentally stumbled into the world of buying a business. It wasn't something very apparent growing up and even having a career in software before. The other element I think is quite unique is that I get to carry on a family business and legacy. And that, that's been an amazing evolving story from buying the family business to developing a playbook to go out and acquire similar companies and bolt them on. My journey is a long and winding road, but I'm really loving what I'm doing and the fact that I get to involve this family legacy as well as create my own chapter of uh, entrepreneurship on top of what my parents built. So you worked in software before? What did that work look like? So when I graduated college, the world was in a very different place. The economy was in the tanks. The best thing going in the States was venture-funded software startups. I think that was the eye-catching thing to do coming out of college. So I, I jumped into the software startup world doing sales and marketing. And that was a great way to go and start your career, learn the skills of having to pound the phones and email and find clients, learn to negotiate, do solution selling. And software was was fun. There were great perks. It was young. Being here on the West Coast, we had the Bay Area, I mean, Seattle. So I, I had a good run in software, ended up being VP of sales and marketing in an early stage company. I was a part of a company that also was acquired by Booking.com. So I, I got to be a part of five startups. Three of them went bust. One of them went acquired. And the last one I was actually fired from and that was a wake-up call to uh, not be a hired gun working for somebody else. So the the pull of software and the fact that you could get equity and potentially build wealth, I mean, that all sounded great while you're working for maybe peanuts in the early days until you get up to a position that I was in. You're making very good money at a VP level. But the merry ground stopped when I was let go from an early stage startup. The CEO and I didn't get along very well. Some lessons learned. I needed to manage up a little bit better. But that was the point where I decided working for myself sounds pretty good right now. Not having to have to report to somebody else where they can say we're done and, and let you go. So what kind of options were you weighing when you, you got let go? Well, I'd, I had seen my parents as entrepreneurs growing up. They had started this translation company from my mom's bedroom and had always done this lifestyle entrepreneurship. They worked out of the house. They were always there for us as kids, getting to go to our, our basketball or sporting events. So I had seen the freedom that that path had provided for them. Uh, and so it, that sounded pretty good at this moment in time that 
I want to go work for myself, even if I have to grind it out and start small. The timing was actually fortuitous because my parents, after 30-something years, were exhausted, they were burnt out, didn't have a succession plan, didn't have any leadership or management crust to take over their business. So it was actually uh, an amazing time and a, a great pivot professionally for me to take the skills that I learned in the software world and be able to take a lifestyle business that they had started and scale it up. Uh, and grow the thing while providing them an exit. So it was, I think, the stars aligning for them and and for me. At what point in your childhood did they start the business, or had they started it before you were born? I think I was two or three years old where uh, my mom became uh, a full-time interpreter, which is somebody who goes between languages, so Spanish and English, and legal settings, healthcare settings, social services. Uh, she would get called out to go on site and interpret for somebody that speaks limited English. So it was around maybe two or three. So my whole life, essentially, I got to see them have this business. Was there a moment in your childhood where it clicked that your parents are entrepreneurs and running their own business and they're, they are their own bosses? You know, as a kid, I thought it was more normal than I do now to see mom and dad working together and have their own business. And as a kid, I would replicate that with my younger sibling. We would play office. We would uh, go door to door selling cinnamon rolls or on Saturdays uh, sell donuts on the street corner. So I think what's interesting is it was so normal to see it as a as a kid that I would play business with my sister. And the irony of that story is now as an adult, I play business with my sister still. She's actually a part of the business and my partner. So we've always been practicing. It's always been an, a normal part, I guess, of, of growing up. Did your parents give you jobs within the business or did you did you work for it on some on some level? You know, actually, I never did work in the business until I joined as an adult. But my sister actually had worked there for 10 years prior to me joining. So she actually did join uh, the family business and learned the operation. So that was a great match. Nice. So at the point of time when you acquired the business. Can you give us an overview of what the business did, what kind of customers they had, various services, how their team was built up, all that sort of stuff? Sure. So we we are a language services company, and that means that we provide uh, written, spoken, and signed language services in about 200 languages. So whether it's a written document, online text, sending somebody to the ER or the courtroom to be the mouthpiece between uh, the different parties that don't speak the same language, or if it's via Zoom or video or FaceTime or phone. So any medium, anytime two people need to communicate, we have a service to bridge the gap. What's, what's interesting is we cover 200 languages. The reality is there's 4,000 languages, so we're, we're quite busy. The, the company started in California 
So greater Los Angeles, which as you can imagine, is a very diverse part of the country. And we work with almost every cusp of society. We're kind of an invisible industry. I think the numbers are we're larger than the music streaming industry as a whole. So we're the biggest little industry that nobody's heard of, which is language services. So to give you an example, we work with healthcare, social services, government. Let's see, we work with nonprofits, international businesses. So every single industry, we have some sort of crossover. So what does a like what does a customer relationship look like? Is it with individual people? Is it with a school district or a company? Can you give us an overview of what the kind of the low end and high end of customer relationships look like? Sure. In such a fragmented and broad industry such as language services, the client relationship really varies by industry. So we have the least sophisticated type of client, which might be an individual who needs documents for immigration that need certified translation. And so that's more of a, a B2C or business to consumer type business model. Somewhere in between, we have the business to business where we might be working with a local uh, healthcare clinic and they need services for patients coming in and out that don't speak English. And so you're working with an office manager and maybe the owner of the clinic. And so that's like a traditional uh, sales cycle and, and you need a customer support. And then we have enterprise sales. So if we're selling to a Fortune 500 company and they need uh, services to translate all of their internal e-learning and training, their manufacturing documents, their marketing materials, Typically, they go through some sort of procurement, RFP. So the sophistication of our sales and our client services really is across the entire spectrum from the consumer to this traditional enterprise sales cycle. What we've tried to do in order to grow organically is focus more on that center, the B2B sales cycle. You have a lot more control and sales cycles are shorter to be able to find more clients in that healthcare clinic situation that I mentioned versus selling to a lot of individuals versus the lungs uh, procurement processes of working with Fortune 500. So that's what you get in the highly fragmented services industry. And so how do you organize your team to handle all those different types of customer relationships? Well, it's an ongoing process. When I jumped into the family business, we were servicing every single customer across that spectrum. And since then, we've specialized more in that middle. They call it rabbits, deer, and elephants. If you eat meat, right, you're going to go out and I'm going to try and catch a bunch of rabbits to feed my family, or I'm going to go focus on bringing down a deer, which there's, it takes a little bit of skill and effort, or I'm going to go elephant hunting and I need a big gun and I need a big team and a lot of time. So we, we've focused on the, the deer, if I could use that analogy in sales to, to grow organically. 
As far as our processes go, we utilize cloud-based software. We all work remote as a team. So it, it was a matter of making the decision to say no to the long tail consumer requests coming in or referring them out and focusing our sales and marketing effort on the, the B2B, the deer. And then occasionally if there's an RFP or bid in that elephant category, if I can keep the analogy going, we evaluate, is it winnable? Is it serviceable? Then we might pursue it, but it's, it's taken an evolution to get here from buying a business that had been around for 30 years and really run as a mom and pop lifestyle business, they were scared to say no, and they would say yes to everything that came across their desk. The challenge of scaling an organization, making sure that we're profitable, that doesn't work for us anymore. We really need to focus. So that's kind of where we are now. So what sorts of things did your parents do running the business as a mom and pop, optimizing for their life and what they prioritize in the business? What sorts of things did you change from that to more of a growth model where you're starting, you're trying to grow the company actively and adding on other bolt-ons? So what sorts of changes did you make from the way they ran the business to how you want to run the business? The advantage of buying an existing business is you get many years of successes and mistakes to evaluate and then intentionally build on and make tweaks. The challenge is you don't want to change too much that's working or, or move too many things too quickly. As a service business, our biggest expense is our, is our team, is our people. And if you make changes too drastically, too quickly, that stresses everybody out and you may have turnover. So I think some of the immediate changes was looking at who our core clients are, really. We had never done that before. Looking what verticals and industries we service and are the most profitable and creating a plan to go out and find more of these best fit customers. We had never had any intentional sales. As a, as a lifestyle business, it was always word of mouth. You do, do a good job and the company will grow. So that was, I think, one of the first changes. Shortly after, it was looking at the operations. So the company had paper in it still. So we were tied to an actual physical location. People were using a database plus paper and post-it notes. So when work orders come in or client requests, you'd have to be in the office and know where that post-it is and on whose desk with the critical details. So we looked at how can we make this cloud-based? How can we remove paper altogether? And that was one of the best decisions that we made. We were able to take uh, one client request, took about 30 minutes of labor hours, right? To, from intake to billing. And by switching to a cloud-based system, we were to con able to condense that time down to five minutes. So it freed up so much capacity for us to continue to grow and give the team the freedom to focus on other high value tasks. So those were the two quick changes that we had made was develop a sales plan that is fits our key competencies today. We don't have to introduce any new service lines or dabble into any uncharted 
territory, and then create operational efficiencies. And finally, I think to round out, my answer to your question was we reevaluated our pricing and our our margins, and we were able to bump up some of our rates. So all of that was like magic. And to be honest, going into it, you know, I newly as a business operator, didn't realize the power of selling more, improving efficiency, and raising our margins, what that does to the bottom line. So it was kind of a surprise to see, wow, this business really is kicking off more cash. And I had no idea that that was a possibility. Yeah, that was really exciting. I, I love going paperless and I, I hate paper within businesses, even though I run a print publishing business. But as a as a process, it's always fun removing paper. The uh, we, Mia Jackson and I on our episode, we chatted about this a little bit, but she has removed a lot of paper in her business. And I, at my full-time job at a college, I helped this wealth management firm move off paper a little bit too. So I love chatting about moving off paper. What part of that process was the most difficult? Like I imagine there's a lot of records that existed on paper that weren't digital or some processes that had to use paper in some specific way that maybe were harder to replicate in software or not? What were some difficulties or challenges in going from paper-based or at least partially paper-based to a cloud solution? Well, one challenge is getting people on board, the people that are in the trenches doing the work, that there might be another way to do this that's more efficient and everyone's so busy doing the work that they don't have time or desire to reimagine the process or explore what else is out there. So I think number one, it was getting buy-in that uh, this process could be improved and it would benefit everybody's life to improve it. The next thing I think that we did was we timed the whole process of and mapped it out. We'd, we didn't have any checklists in the in the company true mom and pop there there weren't any standard operating procedures or checklists for people to follow so we did step by step went through all the details where where they're written out where that piece of paper goes and so by doing that exercise we're able to get an idea of that total time it takes which was shocking and eye-opening for the entire team to see, wow, it takes us 30, 35 minutes for one client request. That really identified the, the time constraint. We only have so many hours in a day and so many people on the team. And then looking at uh, the software system options, we identified three and mapped out a similar process in the software. And we did our demos with the software providers. And we even did trials with some dummy data. And I think that was really eye-opening to go through and see that we can record all the appropriate information in the system. Everyone's got access to it. It takes five minutes instead of 30 minutes. So going through that process, the initial mapping it out, looking at the details, making sure that nothing would be lost in the software, that we would cover all of our steps that requires paperwork. And then the other piece, moving from paper to digital, which I can't believe we're having this conversation. It's 2021. But there's a lot of great businesses out there that still use paper. And I get so excited when I see a company that 
their process has paper because uh, I know that we can drive a lot of efficiency on the other side. But what I want to say is there's amazing scanners that you can upload a bunch of files and have access to them and store them in you know, Google Drive or Dropbox. So we are able to, I think in a day's work, scan an entire office full of file cabinets of tons of contracts, tons of old jobs, and get those all digitized. If I think of the name of the scanner, I think it's called ScanSnap, but it's just such a fast scanner, posts it directly online to a cloud-based file storage. So we ripped the Band-Aid off and we haven't looked back. That's been awesome. And then adding adding salespeople is another one I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about too. So there was no internal sales process. It was word of mouth based. When you hired your first salesperson, what sorts of processes did you create for them or step-by-steps did you create so that they could start selling? And what did that initial process look like from having no sales team to starting to build a sales team? Great question. I was the salesperson starting out and I was the salesperson maybe a little too long. Uh, but my background being in software sales and ultimately managing a team of 25 sales reps, I felt confident I had to spend time learning this industry, learning how we sell and, and uh, who we should be presenting to first. So true small business jumping in sales and operations. But it wasn't until the second acquisition that it was time to hire our first sales hire. So I had, I had done sales up until that second acquisition. Looking back, I would have hired a lot sooner. We got away with doing a junior sales model. So some interns, as well as hiring a VA overseas to help with lead generation and get everything set up in outbound email sequences. And when there was somebody that would agree to a discovery meeting, then I would jump on and take over the sales process. So I was able to get leverage by using some low cost uh, labor and then handle the sales process from that initial meeting. On hiring, it's hard to hire somebody in, in sales uh, it takes a lot of investment and en energy, and it's really an experiment when you're doing the first hire. The company hadn't had one other than me before. Fortunately, this has been an amazing hire, uh, a force multiplier to the business. I was able to pick somebody up that was already in the industry that had a desire to leave a bigger organization where they were just a number and jump jump in. I was attracted to the entrepreneurial journey that we were on on buying and building translation companies and was able to track that great talent by offering something that could be molded and impacted. So I can't say that I have the secret sauce to hiring uh, the right salesperson. I've, I've hired and fired a lot of salespeople. I think the advice that I have is, is uh, hire sooner and hire people that have high curiosity, that have general interest in other people that are self-starting, and you can teach them all the tactical skills. But if somebody is not 
generally interested, especially in a service business where our differentiator is how we talk and how we present ourselves. So that would be my advice is hire sooner and look for those soft skills. Yeah, certainly. Your team is fully remote. And I think based on our phone call, you had some insane number of freelancers. I want to say it was 1,500 or some huge number. How on earth do you manage a team like that? And I, I assume based on our call as well, that you don't interact with all 1,500 every day or every week or month, but use them like every now and then when you need to. But just how do you manage a team that's that big and so scattered across the world too? Sure. I think our database of our network of interpreters and translators is probably closer to 3,000. And the reality is uh, we don't manage everyone per se. That In our industry, they're actually they're standard certifications, accredited programs that an interpreter or translator will go through to become a professional and an independent contractor. So by using our software, we're able to manage the relationships at scale, make sure we have people that are in our system with the right certifications and specialties. And it's almost like a high volume niche staffing model where I'll give you an example. We work with a hospital and not only do we need to send somebody who's a qualified linguist in the languages they're requesting, let's say they need Mandarin, English and Mandarin for a patient interaction. But that person needs to be medically certified. In that state, there's an actual state-level certification that that interpreter needs. And then on top of that, uh, we need to have background checks, vaccination records. With COVID-19, we need proof of COVID vaccinations. So there's a whole slew of requirements that we manage in our system to ensure we're compliant with the client's requests. So software allows us to do this at scale. And then part of it is art, which I do enjoy. I still learn a new language, about a new language every day since there are 4,000 of them. So every now and then a client will come back with an odd language request and we'll need to scour our database to see if we've ever done that language before. If not, we go out and recruit and qualify somebody. But it's it's an ongoing process, really. So even though we've got 3,000 linguists in the system, some of them may, may not be active for a long time because of their language pair is, is rarely requested. And the business was run out of an office in Los Angeles when your parents ran it. So now that you're, you said you're fully remote now, how did you switch from office to remote? It sounds like going paperless was part of that. I'd love to hear more about that transition. Sure. We pulled the, the Band-Aid off to go digital and paperless. And part of that was I wanted to live in Santa Barbara. And our main office was in Orange County and Riverside. And I was making the commute in the early days you know, every other week. And that was a grind to go through Los Angeles traffic every other week. So part of it was just out of selfish personal need. We need to go digital and I need to stop commuting. So we had our office for a little while after and allowed team members to go in and, and work together from the office. 
it wasn't until 2019 before COVID that we decided the office expense was unnecessary. Everyone had grown comfortable uh, with the new process online. We implemented uh, Slack as an internal tool for collaboration, and we weren't missing anything since everything was cloud-based. So it was 2019 that Language Network was online. We also acquired our second business in Washington State at the end of 2019, right before COVID. And this business was, again, all on paper, everybody in the office. So we had to take the same playbook that we implemented for Language Network and really quickly <laughs> apply it to this acquisition we made right as we we're rolling into COVID. Yeah, and acquisitions have been a big part of your your growth over the last two years. I'd love to hear how you eventually decided to start acquiring these companies and why can you tell us why you started to acquire them and why they fit and why that acquisition model of bolting on similar companies made sense for you? Well, as I mentioned before, the idea of buying a company was such a foreign concept. When I decided I wanted to take over the family business, and it was a mentor and friend of mine, actually, David Barnett. I was consulting with him on how do we do this buyout uh, of my parents that he had mentioned, and this planted the seed of, you know, once you do this, I'm sure there's more companies that don't have somebody to take over. What if you create a buying program and are able to acquire them? So that was the seed that started this this business model that we're on. Once we figured out the playbook for going digital and optimizing operations, adding some sales, you kind of hit a, a plateau of how fast and far we can grow organically versus acquisition where you can double in size overnight and get the team to continue to provide the services. So you get this lever up effect of acquisition. So early on when I bought Language Network, I committed to continue to looking and having an active pipeline, talking to other uh, companies in our industry that were selling, get an idea of what was out there, what we could acquire. And I'm glad I did because this whole process takes a long time. So acquired language network through organic sales, we doubled in size and kind of hit a plateau and we were able to do a second acquisition and we were able to double in size overnight again and then institute the playbook of improving operations, going digital, improving margins. I don't know if the the original question was how, how do we stumble into this model, but it was really I want to grow faster where I am in our career as well as the sweet timing in the market. There's a lot of baby boomers, people that have been doing this uh, work for 30 years, and there's nobody to continue on the legacy and carry on what they've built. So part of it is just being in the right place at the right time. And how many companies have you acquired to date? So we've done three acquisitions, and we hope to do uh, two more in the next 12 to 18 months. And it's getting a little bit easier, but it's a lot of work to be an operator and be scaling up our current business and not losing sight of uh, what's in front of us 
as well as evaluating what it looks like to add a net new business into the mix. And I, I will say on a, a caveat, we're a smaller acquisition. I think a lot of search funders are looking for that business that's 1 million to 5 million and in, in EBITDA. And we went smaller. The business language network was around 700,000 in revenue. So really small lifestyle business when I acquired it. And you really had to jump in and get your hands dirty. But that allowed me to understand the business and improve the business. And in that same period of time, do two more acquisitions. So we're around 5 million top line revenue. So that's the power, I think, of going smaller in these acquisitions. You can get more done. You're going to learn the business a lot faster rather than searching for several years for that one sweet platform business. What we're doing right now is is building up our own platform, essentially. So every incremental acquisition we do now is that much less disruptive since we've gotten to this critical mass size of 5 million top line revenue. Yeah, so what's gotten easier and then what's gotten harder with each acquisition? You mentioned things. some things have gotten easier, but love to hear both sides of that coin. Yeah, you know, as we've done each acquisition, my role, I've needed to evolve fast. And I'm glad to have been in the software world where 100, 200% growth and job titles and descriptions change so fast. So joining a nascent service industry, I'm able to take that those same lessons in startup land and realize my role has got to evolve and change. And I need to develop processes and people in order for this organization to scale because in the early days, I'm the biggest bottleneck. So what's gotten easier? Well, number one, I know that I'm mediocre at a lot of things. So (laughs) handing those off to really good people and hiring good people as we've gone and promoting people internally that have more capacity for a higher value tasks has made things easier. You had asked me earlier what fires I wake up to in the morning, and it's a lot less to do with operations. I, I get to focus more on the vision and strategy and culture, making sure we got the right people, meeting with key accounts, keeping an eye on our P&L and finances. So that's what's changed a lot is, is my role. What hasn't changed is it, it still takes a lot of time to find a client and to onboard them and to support them. And it still takes a lot of time to find great interpreters and translators. But that's just part of the business. So, and it hasn't gotten harder. It's just the same. I think what's getting harder now as an organization is culture and making sure we've got people in the right seats. Because we're in hyper growth mode and we're oper- we're acquiring these businesses and we're bolting them together. So our model is we we buy the business as an entity, as its own. We do a stock purchase, if you will. We want to preserve the contracts that are that they have, and that's why we do that model. So all these team members are still employed under that entity, but we tell them you're part of the language network family, which is a series of translation companies. So you may be employed under XYZ Inc., but your job responsibility will cover multiple brands. And that's been an entrepreneurial experience. 
it's really a, a trying experience to make sure we have people in the right seats. And some people have churned out because that's not their cup of tea, but others have really shined. So I guess my final answer is people, making sure that we're cultivating people, that we have a culture of trial and error and, and being entrepreneurial, making sure we don't have any deep-seated old way of doing things, thinking that prevents our forward progress. So as a leader, those have been my challenges. So where do these deals come from? I, I assume there's some element of your you chat with brokers who get these types of deals every now and then or, or banks. I assume, though, there's a lot of companies you just know of and have built relationships with or reach out to directly that also lead to deals. So where do deals generally come from? The benefit I think we have is that we're so focused on doing a roll-up in our space of translation, interpreting services. And that's allowed us to talk to all of the industry brokers, which is actually quite common. There's a handful of intermediaries where they'll focus on a, a type of industry or business. So every single broker in our space, we've developed a relationship with. I check in regularly. If we go to an industry conference before COVID, I'd make sure to have a cocktail with them. When they do send me an opportunity, I make sure to give them feedback, whether it's inbounds, looks like a good fit for us, or I give them a couple of points of what would make uh, an opportunity a good fit for us. So that that's the benefit of being a buyer and focused really on one industry. Uh, then there's the other element, which is referrals. So we've had a couple of deals that came from the seller of, of the company we just acquired. So that's also great is making sure you've got a good reputation with the seller uh, and, and deals can come that way. And then, of course, the mailers and the email outreach. I'd say that's kind of a top of the funnel activity when you're just getting started, but doesn't hurt because those letters have a long shelf life, especially if it's really personable especially if you're putting in there, I already own a similar company in the space. It gives you a lot more credibility to the seller. And so we've gotten calls maybe 14 months uh, later where they were saving it for when they were really burnt out and thinking about selling. And then the other deal flow piece is industry conferences. So I've, I go to all of them in our space and I make sure to speak at all of them and share about our experience operating and buying these companies. And that's been fantastic for just general thought leadership and branding. But so many conversations after doing a talk that turn into opportunities is amazing. What I'll do at the industry events when I speak is I'll ask my show of hands who's looking to sell their company at some point. So a couple of brave souls will raise their hands and I make a mental note. Those are all the folks I need to talk to and follow up with. But some people aren't as brave to raise their hands. So I'll ask a follow-up question of how many of you would like to know you could sell your business at your time of choosing at some point in the future. So then we'll get a, a broader group raise their hands. So they may not be ready, but let's nurture those opportunities. So I I really think doing acquisitions, 
and focusing on a niche where you can bolt on is such a, a force multiplier. As I go, this business model has evolved where we got to this point. So I can't say I'm a genius and thought of this from the start. Uh, but those would be my main areas for deal flow. And then you talked about building a good relationship or a good good reputation with sellers. I assume part of that is also just deal structuring. How do, how do you tend to structure or think through the deals you do with sellers? This is a great question and one that I would like to preface by saying in the United States, the SBA is a fantastic program, but it's made all of us lazy at doing deals. It sets an expectation for buyer and seller that we can just go to the bank, borrow a ton of money, pay all cash at close, have some decent financing over a 10-year period. So fantastic program, but the downside is it's made brokers, buyers, and sellers all lazy. And there's a lot of businesses that actually don't fit the lendable model for SBA 7A. So with that being said, there's a lot of ways to do a deal. And we've done them all, at least the ones that are relevant for our industry, which is uh, some sort of seller note. You can do royalty agreements where if there's customer concentration, which inevitably in a service business there is, uh, where consideration or, or purchase price is paid out on performance. So it's kind of like an earnout. We have done more of an earnout piece. We've also done a seller or working capital note. So the seller wanted certain terms and, and price. And we said we can't give you price and put in the capital to fund the working capital. So something's got to give. And we're able to get really great working capital terms. So the seller left cash in the business uh, for a lot less than we could have borrowed. So that way the business can stand on its own and start generating its own cash flow. So there's a lot of ways to, to do a deal, especially if you're an industry buyer and now you've got that credibility. People have heard or seen you do a talk that they're buying a proven operator and by them holding paper or allowing you to improve their operation is going to be a, a solid bet for them. You're very bankable. So in the service business, especially in these deals that are sub 1 million, sub 2 million, sometimes they're messy and you've got to do some creative deal structures to make it happen. So have you used SBA debt at all, or have you only used conventional so far? Uh, we did do uh, 7A for one of the deals, and that was a great experience. I, I would gladly use SBA 7A again. It just takes such a long time and uh, tons of paperwork, tons of extra scrutiny. The cost of doing the deal with all the fees, there's that component. I tell our sellers, I'd rather pay you interest. Uh, it goes into your pocket and I'd, I'd rather work in a way where we can move faster than involve an, a third party lender. Uh, but we did use it for one deal. It, the option was we would, she would carry for three years 
and we would do, I believe it was 15% down. So at close, she would carry the whole note for three years. So that goes to show you how much trust and rapport we had built up. Uh, but we were able to pay 20% less by giving her all cash at close and doing the SBA 7A program. So we opted for that uh, because it was a 10-year term at 5.5%. So I had nothing against it. It just, uh, there's a lot of other options out there. What are you most excited for over the next year? Gosh, I, I love what I'm doing and I love the space that other people are finding legacy businesses and buying them and infusing them with fresh ideas and, and growing them, preserving the goodwill. I think it's such an amazing opportunity for people to be entrepreneurial and, and buy a business. So I feel really blessed to, number one, carry on family legacy but number two, have the freedom, flexibility to be an entrepreneur and build on top of that platform. So I'm excited to do more of what I'm doing. As boring of an answer as that is, I'm excited to do one or two more of these um, bolt-on acquisitions. I'm looking forward to the management team that we're developing. So we're at that stage as a company where middle management is being solidified and i've got some great people so investing in the team and somebody had said that you're not a leader until you've developed leaders who develop leaders and so personally i feel like i'm at that cusp of i'm developing the next group of leaders in the company and then hopefully in two years time they'll have developed the next set of, of leaders behind them. So just on a personal, you know, fulfillment level, I'm really excited to be doing that with my team. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's very cool to hear. Moving into closing questions, what college class would you teach if it could be about any subject you wanted? Okay, and you're going to ask this one and I wouldn't say I'm an expert on anything to teach a college class. And oftentimes I question the validity of a college degree or how relevant it is nowadays. But with that being said, I'm glad that I got to go to Westmont, which is a liberal arts school here in Santa Barbara. I, I would love to give back by maybe teaching how to buy a business and help undergrad business econ majors or anyone in general think about uh, leaving college and buying a boring business or a main street business and how to operate it into the future. So that would be one thought. The other is I wish somebody taught me strategic decision-making sooner in life of, of how to weigh risk and reward, look at all the moving variables and look at worst case or best case or base case outcomes and learning that if the reward is high enough and you can live with worst case, then then go for it. So I, I'm not an expert on strategic decision making, but that I would have loved to have gone through a class like that. And if I could just be one chapter ahead, maybe I could teach the class. So that those would be my answers. Yeah, I wish I could take both those in, in college. Those would have been really, really fun. 
What strongly held belief have you changed your mind on? This, this one is interesting because the hard work and more hours equals success has been deep-seated seeing my parents uh, own their own business, working late nights. So, and this is generally accepted, I think, in the, in the business world that you have to grind and put in your time. And some of that may be true, but there's definitely a, a pivotal moment where if you really want to scale up and have your business be successful or you as an individual go to the next level is that I need to look at the hundred tasks that I have and bucket them accordingly, that there's a lot of tasks that I shouldn't do and that I should work less and I should work on the higher dollar productive tasks. So I think not ground shatter or earth shattering, but uh, a mentor had told me that you need to bucket your tasks into ten dollar an hour tasks, hundred dollar an hour tasks, one thousand, ten thousand, you know, so on and so forth, hundred thousand dollar tasks, and get to a place where you can focus on those high dollar amount tasks, and the rest of them delegate to your team. So that's where I'm at right now. Is that I actually need to work a lot less number of hours in my week, and work a couple more hours on those high dollar value tasks. What's the best business you've ever seen? So since I've looked specifically in the language services space, my example is tied to that. So there's two interesting ones. In the professional services industry, which I encourage people to look at more businesses in this technical, scientific, professional services bucket. One of them was a niche immigration document translation company. And it was a team of two people, and they had developed online uh, website, did a ton of great online marketing for that business to consumer to get immigration documents quickly and reliably translated. They had great margins. They were hyper-focused. I think what was really neat about it is just how how focused they were on immigration needs. The other I will example I'll give is a translation company that does help desk ticket translation. So again, super niche. And they had built an API that connected with uh, help desk, like Zendesk. There's a whole bunch of them. And what they would do is they would pull in any texts, so support tickets and customer inquiries, and had a workflow to quickly translate that text, ship it back via API to the help desk. So that way the client could overnight provide customer care in many, many languages. So I just I love the niche focus of these two companies and just proving that there's uh, so much room for creativity and uh, a lot of ways to make a dollar in a particular industry. Yeah, there's definitely tons and tons of ways. That's been one of the fun parts of running the podcast is constantly finding uh, niche industries like language services. So that's been a that's been a really fun fun part for me. 
Thanks, Jordan, for sharing a little bit of time about language services and the business that you run and taking over from your family and building a sales team and remote work and all this other stuff. It's been really fun to chat with you about it all. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. And if you want to learn more about the Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better. Thank you.